Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Folk singer John McCutcheon has had a long career as a musical storyteller with profound lyrics and heartfelt messages. Bucket List tells stories of seizing the day even when it comes at a time of quiet and peace. He wrote this album along with another to be released later this year during his time in isolation at the height of the pandemic. John McCutcheon joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's always lovely to talk to you. So we last spoke in June of 2020 after the release of your album, Cabin Fever, Songs from Quarantine. You wrote that in a span of three weeks, self-isolating in a cabin in North Georgia. It's hard to believe it's almost been two years and we're still dealing with this pandemic. How do you feel when you listen back to Cabin Fever now or play songs from the collection. Cabin Fever was really a product of its time. Even in the execution of it, it was just me and a single instrument. This is my 50th year of doing this and I've never done an album that way before. You know, there are songs on Cabin Fever that are not wedded to that particular time, though there are others like Frontline and sheltered in place and even the night that john prine died and some of them i do when i'm out doing shows now which i'm gratefully doing finally but it was really of its time moving forward to bucket list and the forthcoming album leap which will be out in june those are less wedded to a particular period but they were all inspired by the the lack of interruption from, you know, not I didn't have to go to an airport every weekend and a lot of the things that occupied my time during the day just allowed me to write and a uh, hundred songs later and counting, here we are. Wow. When we last spoke, you said that during the early months of the pandemic, you afforded yourself more time to talk with people than you otherwise would have done. 
has that continued even though a little bit of normal life has started to pick up again? Well, I find myself less wedded to a clock than I was before. So yes, I'm, I'm having generally longer conversations with people than I was, say, two, three, four years ago. Not quite as luxuriously as it was in the early days of the pandemic, but I think most of your listeners can relate to that. Mm. 100 new songs during your time in isolation. Where do you find the inspiration for so much new music? How does it come to you? Well, Lois, it comes to me in a number of different ways. There's a couple of songs on um, on Bucket List that were kind of around, rattling around my memory for a long time. There was a, there's a song called Moonshiner that was based on a recording I heard at an oral history library at an Eastern Kentucky college an old-timey moonshiner just talking about how he did it, why he did it, how things change in the course of his lifetime. I am a moonshiner, I learned it from my pa. How to make a good mash, how to hide out from the law. Well, I'll go up some holler and I'll set up my stew. Sell you a gallon for $20 bill. You know, again, when you have a lot of, of open space in your mind, stuff like that comes up and you say, well, golly, I've been thinking about writing that for a long time. There's a song about a small village in southeastern France that has been a harbor for refugees for hundreds of years. And I remember reading about that in the travel section of the New York Times. Uh, about three or four years ago, and again, it came back to me one day, and I said, oh, okay, let's write about that today. But in general, I discovered that I I have a, a kind of regimen in the morning that is comprised of a combination of, you know, prayer, poetry, meditation, all this totally right brain stuff that kind of steers me in that direction. So, it's, I, I feel like I've been more open to going into unexpected places. Some, I mean, the song Atonement on the album, Bucket List, for instance, begins with tires crackle on the gravel and go on to tell a story of a, a reformed white supremacist who visits a place where he burned down a black family's house. Tires crackle on the gravel as I pull up to the place, take a breath and step out to meet history face to face. Stone chimneys all that standing, the rest had gone to ground. Ain't been back here since the night I burned the damn place down. Oh, I was young and stupid, sure and hard back then. You're was the color of my skin. And I didn't know that story was in there. I just heard a truck going by my cabin and I heard the tires crackle on the gravel and I wrote that down and it was off to the races. When I read about that song and listened to it, it brought to mind John Lewis for me. You probably remember when he 
met with at least one of the policemen who had beaten him bloody in Alabama. And I just wondered how on earth could someone forgive a man? He nearly killed him. And John Lewis said he believes there is a spark of the divine in all of us. And I was simply blown away by that, by the grace in that. Well, and that that is truly amazing grace. You're right. And it's interesting that there have been a couple of instances similar to that. You may recall when the young Amish girls were killed in their school up in Pennsylvania. That was, what, back in 2007, I think? And then at Mother Emanuel Church, when the nine church people were killed during a, a Bible study by that young white man. And the first thing you heard was, we forgive you. And you marvel at that, and yet every Sunday, most of us grew up praying, forgive us our trespasses <laughs> as we forgive those. When you are confronted, and I think your description of John Lewis was, was really apt, and it's not confined to Christianity, but when you hear someone say these things and you kind of go, oh yeah, well, we were all kind of taught that, weren't we? Here's somebody who's living it. You mentioned you're back on stage. Recently, you had a show at Eddie's Attic, mm -hmm. and I read you were on tour in Chicago, among other places. What's it like for you to be back live? You know, I remember being at the very first concert that the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra did after their lockout a number of years ago. And the audience, when they when they came on stage, the audience just stood up and cheered. They were so grateful to have that part of their life back. And it's kind of been like that out on the road. It's, it's really humbling. You realize that people are not just clapping for you. They're clapping for the fact that, you know, look where we are. We're all doing this thing that we realized in its absence, how essential it was to our lives. And like a lot of musicians, I've been doing online concerts and they're, you know, what we could do. But getting in with a group of people and hearing people singing together is, I realized was one of the things I missed. Hmm. Tell us about Bucket List. That song, the Sydney Opera, jumped out at me. Is that one of your hopes of performing there? Or have you already performed? I've been there, yes. And this was a... I remember writing this song very vividly. Uh, my wife, Carmen, and I were up at our cabin between LJ and Blue Ridge. It's, it's, I guess it's strictly in Cherry Log. And we had been you know, stuck together for the better part of a year. And we still liked one another. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, it was not a given. We'd never spent this much time together before. And I remember thinking, you know, I, for a half a century, I have traveled all over the world and I've done amazing 
things and been blessed in so many ways. And I just looked across the room at her and I thought, well, this is the real adventure. This is the great adventure. So it was really a love song, but also kind of a declaration of some of a lot of the things on that in that song I've done. Some I haven't. I haven't been to Tuva. I haven't been to Senegal. But, you know, it's it's a marvelous thing to realize that being home, and that may seem, uh, you know, prosaic for, for people who don't travel for a living, but for those of us who travel, and I've talked to lots and lots of my musical friends who are saying, you know, I didn't realize how much I liked being home. And it's a, it's a new sensation, surprisingly for folks like us. And to hear their tales and songs To find a place of peace at last Where I know that I belong and everywhere I've ventured Wherever I did roam I never found a place as sweet as home So turn the bucket over I'm done I've traveled this earth over And I've had a world of fun Wonders I have witnessed, all the victories I've won. Of all life's great adventures, you're the one. Of all life's great adventures, you're the one. So turn the bucket over. So what big ticket items or grand adventures still remain on your bucket list? Oh, I'd love to ride the Orient Express from, I mean, we're talking all the way from Eastern Europe to Vladivostok. I mean, I want to, I want to sleep on trains for, for days. And And you'd have to have Hercule Poirot on board, right? Well, let's, I don't think I want that much drama. (laughs) (laughs) But more and more, I, I, feel like I'm nesting, even when I think about doing something like that. I would like all my kids and grandkids to be there. I was invited to a festival in Belfast, Ireland in 2019, and it was on Father's Day weekend. And I said, I can't go. It's Father's Day weekend. That's important in our house. And they said, well, how about if you bring your whole family? And I said, you're going to pay my whole family to come over? They said, yes. And I I thought, I did not ask for enough money. (laughs) (laughs) Did the McCutcheon have anything to do with that? I think so. I I would Uh. like to think so. And I got to perform with my dear friend, Tommy Sands, who's, you know, there was no musician more involved in the resolution of the Troubles than Tommy Sands. And so it was, it was really, I really felt like it was hands across the water, people just trying to, their best to do good work. And I wrote a lot there, imagine that. And my people all came from Northern Ireland. So it was, it was a treat to take my children back to the old sod. I can imagine. Like Cabin Fever, you are offering Bucket List as a pay-what-you-will download. How come? When I put out Cabin Fever, I knew I was not going to be going on the road for a while. I certainly didn't imagine it was going to be as long as it turned out to be. And these days, that's where you sell physical CDs, is at your shows. And I realized that I had lost all my work into the future, so I didn't have any money. And I thought, well, there's a lot of people out there who don't have any money, and they need 
music too. So I put it up as a download only album, which I'd never done before. I mean, they'd always been downloadable, but this was download only. It was the only way to get it. But I also said you can download not only MP3s, which people do all the time. I said, here are the wave files. It's going to take up more space on your device. It's going to take longer to do it, but it won't be any more money. And you can burn your own CDs if you're into that. And it'll be full, you know, full spectrum audio. And then I, you know, I just put it out there like that saying, if you, if you don't have the money, fine, no questions asked, choose the zero. If you want to pay $10 or $20 or $50 or whatever. And the average person paid about $50. And there were plenty of people who downloaded it for free. And I think a lot of it was people just wanting to support me during a time when they knew that there was no money coming in. And a lot of musicians felt that. It was a really gratifying and humbling thing to realize that your fan base understood what your situation was and they wanted to lend a hand. Singer-songwriter John McCutcheon. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If you are just joining us, my guest today is singer-songwriter John McCutcheon. We've been discussing his current album, Bucket List, and here he shares the story behind the song, Be Still. That's maybe my favorite song on Bucket List. One of the things, again, that the pandemic afforded me was to really tackle meditation, which is something, you know, it's, it's been on my, you know, self-improvement bucket list <laughs> for years. And my best friend from, my oldest friend, we've been best friends since I was 11 years old, has been into meditation since he was in college. He lives out in California now. And so we've, you know, he's encouraged me, he's talked about it. And there was also uh, a dear friend of mine named Carrie Newcomer from up in Indiana. And she and I sort of got together a lot talking about how to do online shows in a way that was audially and visually appealing and professional. And then we sort of veered off into spirituality and songwriting and all kinds of stuff. So when Christmas came around in 2020, I wrote Be Still, sort of as a product of understanding a lot more about meditation and contemplative prayer, as a Christmas gift for Carrie and for my friend Rich out in California. And it was a, a lovely surprise when I listened back to the raw song and thought, this is actually pretty good. It's the roiling of the world all around you, be still. When everything conspires to confound you, be still. When they offer one more lie and you know you had your fill, be still. When you realize the fools will go to any length, be still. You need to find a way to gather up your strength. Be still, they don't understand true power and you know they 
imagine their response to it. They were grateful and and it was a way of acknowledging something that we shared as well. Quite a Christmas gift. John, will you tell us a bit about Leap, the album to be released later this year? The number three pandemic album. <laughs> <laughs> Leap is still a part of this. It's not, these aren't necessarily chronologically composed albums. Bucket List had a, a set of songs that kind of told a story of a time. Cabin Fever, of course, was particularly of its time. The difference between Cabin Fever and Bucket List was that I brought in some of my musical posse to play with me, John Carolyn and J.T. Brown, who I met when they were original members of Mary Chapin Carpenter's band. And we were all working in the same studio up in the Washington, D.C. area. And Stuart Duncan, who's probably the most on-demand musician in Nashville, the greatest fiddle player I've ever heard, who amazingly likes my songs and likes playing on my album. So the, th the four of us, you know, did this album completely remotely. Usually we're sitting in a circle recording all at the same time. This was, you do your part, send it to me, I'll do my part. A really, you know, isolated, stupid and expensive way to make an album. And so uh, I decided to get even stupider and added the the fellow who has played percussion and drums with me and the another guitar player and the vocalist, my friends, Kathy Matea and Tim O'Brien, and even Tommy Sands, who I mentioned from Belfast. It's going to sound much more like the albums that I have done over the last 50 years. And in some respects, I think these are the best songs of the bunch. They really dig down into stuff that I was surprised to find myself writing about. A whole world died this morning when she passed away. She took her history with her. She's got nothing more to say. More than a mere witness, she managed to live through and spend her lifetime since telling everything she knew. And from here it is all secondhand, tales to be retold. The horror and uncertainty of all those days of old. The boots upon the staircase, the pounding at the door. The trains, tattoos, the showers, all hidden by the wall. I saw the, the film Shadowland about C.S. Lewis in his late life who married and a, a song came from that. My sister went through a divorce with an abusive husband and I found myself writing a song about that from a perspective I never imagined I would write. Or a friend of mine called me, uh, was just raving about the song from Cabin Fever, The Death of John Prine, and I realized what he was doing is he was wondering if I was gonna write a song for him when he died. So I wrote a song called, I'll Write You a Great Song When You're Dead. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really kind of all over the place, but I think I saved the best songs for last. My goodness. Do you have any advice for 
up-and-coming musicians trying to create a career, trying to make a name for themselves during these unprecedented times. Boy, if you're just starting off, it's hard enough to get a gig in the best of times. Right now, even the, the best musicians are having a hard time getting gigs and getting people to feel comfortable coming out. The two things I would say is, number one, don't give up your day job unless you hate it. Uh, if music can be something that gives you fulfillment and joy and a few extra bucks here and there, great. If your mortgage depends on it, it puts it in a different category for you. So when you're starting off, unless you hate your day job, don't, don't give it up. The second is do what almost everybody does. And I don't think enough people talk about it. When I was starting off, every time I went to a concert, it was like I was in a, in a classroom. I was watching what this person did, how they did it. This person who was more experienced and skilled than I, and, and people like Tom Paxson and Pete Seeger took me under their wing and were incredibly generous. And they realized that this was not about stardom. This was, you know, you were the new link in the chain. And I think an awful lot of musicians feel that way. And the great gift that you discover after you've been in it long enough is that it's a lot more about companionship and cooperation than it is about competition. So ask questions, you know, people, especially old dogs like me who've been at it for a long time are all too happy to say, yeah, I remember being where you are right now. Let me buy you a beer, you know. Singer-songwriter John McCutcheon, his album Bucket List is available now, and his 42nd album, Leap, will be released later this year. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, a visit with the multi-talented actor and artist Danielle Detweiler. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Critics have described the HBO series Station Eleven as amazing, earnest, emotional, and gripping. Atlanta actor and artist Danielle Deadweiler stars as the brooding artist and logistics expert Miranda Carroll and her real-life multimedia art has long inspired our city. When Deadweiler joined me via Zoom earlier this year, she began with the chilling experience of filming in Chicago in the middle of a pandemic and during the dead of winter. Two of my friends who lived there prior to me being there they said, Danielle, do not worry about an Atlanta coat. It will serve you not. And so <laughs> I immediately went to get a Chicago bread coat in order to keep warm. And then the show happened to give us one Canada goose, baby. And, and so it kept me warm trudging through 
the city, going to, you know, the South Side, going to Evanston, and just seeing everything about this, you know, very transitional place, which feels transitional in the way that Atlanta does. But <laughs> I even was there for a polar vortex. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm not sure if that's a badge of honor or a sentence. I feel like I got one. <laughs> yeah, surviving it. Yeah, forget the apocalypse. You survived the polar vortex. I survived a polar vortex. It, it was, it's invigorating. I don't know why one would want to do it multiple times, but it was invigorating. <laughs> right. Well, among the recurring comments from various critics and viewers has been, don't worry about the pandemic premise of the show. Station Eleven is about much more than just the end of the world. How would you describe the show if a synopsis is possible? I think the show is about art. It is about creation. It's a creation story of how legacy moves through us, how community develops. That's it at its core. We follow the life of a woman in Miranda Carroll and how she comes to, to know herself, how she comes to appreciate what it is that she has experienced on a, a subconscious level or visceral level and what it means to navigate relationships in a pre-pandemic world for her as a super survivalist under a remembered traumatic history and how she passes on survivalist practices to a world that is post-pandemic. What was it like being immersed in a series about a pandemic during the pandemic? The most stressful thing you can ever experience. I would think. You know what? Okay, so this is what happened. We shot in Chicago and Toronto, actually. We shot episodes one and three in Chicago. We're intentionally taking a break so that, you know, the seasons could shift and then the pandemic began that March. So we were shooting one and three starting in January, 2020. And so I, being who I am, Miranda is a survivalist. I'm witnessing all of this happening. I'm watching and hearing about the doctor who initially died in the Philippines. I'm waiting for the first people who are contracted it in, in Wuhan to come back to the U.S. And, and thinking about, you know, how all of this is impacting us and knowing that the conversation is proliferating, but it's not being wholly regarded by the majority in the way that it it would be quite yet. And so I'm thinking about this whilst we're making it, but the world isn't shifting yet. The outside world is still living in a pre in a pre-pandemic manner. And so I'm on the train, you know, I'm on the I'm like wow, he's eating a donut. This person across from me was just eating a donut in the most intimate fashion and fingers in the mouth and everything and it bothered me to my core. I I just controlled where I was. I was deeply entrenched in filming, but said stay inside a little bit more often and was deeply, you know, involved in the production and the crafting of of Miranda and the story. So I was unnerved. My son was going to initially come. I said, no, thanks. It's okay. I'll see you in a short time. You know, it's making those kind of decisions whilst the world was still moving in a quote unquote normative fashion is how I was experiencing it and it was, it was unnerving. It was, it's, it's scary. It was scary Scary and surreal. Mm -hmm. Surreal for sure. That (laughs) added layer. 
You mentioned how Miranda, one of her strengths is memory. In fact, in a job interview, she takes with a logistics firm. In her job interview, she says, I remember everything. It's among her strongest qualities. We don't know much about her background, except that her father worked on a ship, and she learned a lot from observing him. We see how smart she is, fiercely smart, and fluent in Chinese, I should add. By the way, we can talk about that too. you are very convincing in that. So now we are speaking before the season finale. I don't want you to spoil anything, and I certainly don't want to put you on the spot. But from what we've seen, we don't know that much about Miranda's background outside of the fact that her dad worked on a ship, and she's very smart. How did you form her character without knowing much about her? That's the funny part. I knew everything. And you all will come to learn more ah. as the finale comes in the next couple of days, which is sad and ex exciting at the same time. But it was really a crafting with Patrick Somerville and Hiro Mirai, the creator and showrunner, Patrick, and the episodes one and three director, Hiro. We really were just super connected and crafting together what the experience of Miranda was, how she was navigating the world. This is a woman who... There are so much that was a part of the scripts that began to shift as the, the story was being produced. And so I wasn't in the cold and, and not to mention the book, right? Like the show drives itself. It is not necessarily inherently like driving in the manner of the book. And so we, you know, take creative license to do what we will. But the, there are core qualities that are a part of the novel Miranda that are are witnessable in Miranda in the limited series, too. So I wasn't in a naked place, hopefully. <laughs> it wasn't a vacuum. And, and it sounds like the executive producer and adapter. Do you call him adapter? Patrick Somerville. Sure, the adapter, yeah, yeah. And your director were helpful in your realizing Miranda. She's an artist, and she creates the very art that is the catalyst for this story. How did your own experience as a visual and performance artist influence your portrayal on screen? <laughs> it's so funny. I wasn't thinking about what I do because I intentionally call myself an artist. I identify as an artist. I participate in our artistic communities. I'm having those, those dialogues. Miranda isn't an identifiable artist. She is doing what she does to navigate the world that she is around. She is doing what she does to, to become more self-aware. I think we all, like all artists are, I would hope that all artists are trying to get to the core of a self, to get to a deeper understanding of who they are. But she's not doing it in an effort to be commercial. She's not doing it in an effort to reap capitalistic benefit. Miranda is doing it to find a whole self. And so Miranda says she's in logistics. 
Miranda's a supply chain expert. That's who Miranda thinks she is. That's who Miranda defines herself as. She is doing this creation because that's just something that human beings have the capacity to do. And that is what she chose to do in order to, to find her whole self. And that's why she prints that book to just share with the community that was a part of a pivotal moment when she was making and when she unmade and when, when she therein remade again, right? So she, she burns the pool house. We all know this at this point. And, and she starts over because it's not about other people. It's not about showing off. It's not about any of that. It's, it's, about, it's about going into a deeper, darker self in order to come out on the other side. And she finally came out on the other side. And the, the difference between her is that she doesn't get to control the longevity and the legacy of what her work does for the people who are able to witness it. Yeah, but ironically, its survival is part of what sustains everyone else's. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is a critical need, right? Like if there were a preface or whatnot in the book for her to say what this was, for her to say to anyone who reads it, who witnesses it, this is how it is to be perceived. And because she doesn't have the, the care of the legacy, it's been able to be interpreted by youthful minds, malleable minds in a way that might not have been her intention. And so it's misinterpreted, right? Or it's a baby that they were able to craft unto themselves in the situations that they were in, the traumatic situations that they were in. I just find that really interesting. I think that's an important lesson that I learned for myself as an artist who does identify as one, that it is that much more an inherent responsibility for me to care for my work and how it impacts the world. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with one of the stars of the critically acclaimed HBO series Station Eleven, Atlanta's very own multi-talented Danielle Detweiler. Danielle plays the character of Miranda Carroll. Part of what was fun for me knowing you and watching you on screen in the series is that I know that in real life, you are also a visual artist. Ha ha ha, rest of the world, <laughs> which is also viewing this season. You don't necessarily know this. In fact, the last time you were on City Lights, Danielle, was for the Atlanta Washerwoman Strike, the show you yes, curated. Yes, yes, Will to Adorn, yeah. Will to Adorn at the Mint Gallery, which was not only a fantastic, fantastic exhibition, but an important history lesson for us. So I went back to look at your artist statement, your visual artist statement, and I wanted to ask you about this. I'm going to read just a portion from it. We learned that you create spaces for interfacing with Black female subjectivity as a daily being in myriad social spheres. How does that inform your portrayal of Miranda, if it does? I think it's inherently a part of it. Though we don't necessarily have a discussion about race 
in the limited series, we are looking at a politicized body. I am a black woman and that is significant to, to the experience of my body. And, and we get to delve into how she's just literally moving about the world. That's important. How she attains, how she shifts once she comes into what she is, you know, what she does, how she is different and unique and yet smart and withdrawn and guarded and intentional about how she makes. I think that surely is informing the care that I have and that I think about when I'm thinking about Black women in this world. That's truly informing how I handled who who Miranda was and how she navigated space. (laughs) She's different. We do know she's a Caribbean, she's Caribbean born, but she's American raised. And that's a significant difference in, and, and the trauma that we will learn of in the finale, how that informs how she takes space. So I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about that. Yeah. Okay. Here we go with the retelling of the Passover story and the Exodus, <laughs> my version of it. Danielle, The first time I saw you perform was in True Colors' production of Will Power's play, Fetch Clay, Make Man. Oh, my goodness. That's 2016. (laughs) Yes, six years ago, you played Sanji Clay, the wife of the man whom we know as Muhammad Ali. I was absolutely blown away. Now, your character didn't have that much time on stage, nowhere near the length of time as the men did. But I had to know who you were, and I never forgot it. Everything I saw you in since took me back to that. And watching Station 11 took me back to that as well, because... I think it may be fair to say that your trademark as an actor, going back to my first encounter with you, is intensity. Would that be correct? <laughs> that, that, I would dare say that is correct, Lois. Oh, good. I mean, hey. hey. Feminized or masculinized, it is intensity. <laughs> there you go. I mean, hey, you're in decent company, Marlon Brando. We can think of some other intense actors who are pretty good because you certainly deliver intensity in Miranda. If you are to receive an award for your role, and I think that is quite likely, I believe this scene that will be played is in episode three, which is titled The Hurricane. When you are in front of a group of corporate executives giving a pitch, but changing course to tell them that the man you loved died last night and you went to work. You repeat that for a total of three times and completely break down sobbing. Okay, that's going to be not only the scene that gets you the award and the clip that will be played. But I think for every director who casts you from here on, that will be what lands your role. I wish we could play a clip. I don't think we have rights from HBO. And I'm not going to ask you to do that right now, but would you talk about that scene? 
Oh. Lois, that came in the first three days of shooting. <gasps> oh my goodness, of course. It, the story is nonlinear. So you shot out of order too. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, it came in the first three days of shooting. And oh, it's amazing how that is the experience of us all. I like to think. I think at this point in still dealing with the pandemic, I really don't know where my head was at. I was entrenched in the dialogue with Hero at the time. He said one word that was critical, and he said, It's absurd. This is absurd. Miranda is someone who knows that the world is, is turning upside down and is navigating how to deal with a world turning upside down before everybody else in Station Eleven deals with a world turning upside down. She's doing it pre-pandemic in the chaos of making the book Station Eleven for herself. And so to witness all of that, you know, like to think about it, to be aware of she is she is a person navigating a particular trauma and has come full circle and then cannot complete the circle because her lover is dead, because the man she loves is dead and, and is now doing this thing to what? Pacify her, her peer, Jim Phelps, because he couldn't come to grips with it before when she told him because they couldn't escape. There is some kind of internal clock that turns on for us as humans when when the wretched happens when the gruesome happens we start to we do weird things when when critical stuff happens to our bodies and our minds sometimes the mind just takes us to a, a place where where it, it goes into the routine and in the midst of doing this routine she recognizes how it, it is not true. It is not true to her body. It is not true to her mind. It's not true to the spirit of this moment. And so she, she falls apart. And I mean, I have plenty of personal things that can support me in understanding what that emotionally is. And then it was coming. It was an impending thing. Even before I flew to Chicago, it was like, oh, oh, this rumbling of this peculiar flu was happening. But I, I hadn't given it that much attention quite yet. And you're finding out more about the story, more about the environment, more about who your character, in my case, Miranda, is along the way. I knew more later on than I did necessarily in the first three days. And so, I don't know, I think it's a spiritual moment to come apart in that way. And I think that we have been coming apart in that way. And some people want to go back to pre-rupture, but you can't go back to pre-rupture. You have to accept the flow of, of the hurricane, the flow of the change that is, is, is imminent. And we're still in the midst of the, of the chaos to today. Brilliant. Thank you. On a lighter note, what was it like working with that group of actors and creatives behind the scenes? <laughs> it was isolating for me because Miranda's who she is. She's navigating the world alone in a kind of way. Everybody else is post-pandemic, well, post-flu in the story and mine's right. So, you know, um, primarily I worked with Gael and David Wilmot and those were my, you know, my buddies. <laughs> and so it was about really harnessing, you know, an intimacy between all of us because that's the truth of the experience in the story that, they, they have this thing that collapses due to Miranda's need to, to, to fulfill herself. 
we just had a lot of fun. David and Gael are two men who have a long history in this art game in general, in a lot of ways. <laughs> And so I would just listen to stories of them and, and we laughed and we, we, <laughs> we, we were on set long, 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 beautiful hours. And it was a joy to do together. Actor, visual artist, and performance artist, Danielle Detweiler. Her critically acclaimed series, Station Eleven, is available for streaming on HBO Max. Finally today, the Los Angeles Talent Agency, UTA, is opening an art gallery in Atlanta. The media powerhouse wanted to create a hub for Atlanta artists and creatives to showcase their talents. Former basketball player Virgil Tony Parker and Bridget Baldo, longtime executive for UTA Fine Arts, will run the three-story gallery. Parker will serve as sales director, while Baldo will oversee programming, working with the artists and creatives. The art gallery is planned to open in Atlanta in January of 2023. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian, journalist, and author Faith Saley stops by to share stories from her book, turned one-woman show, turned audible original, approval junkie. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. 
Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.